I V M. It's a hot and dusty summer day in 170 CE. We're in the university city of Nalanda, in a large debate hall where a bunch of students, professors, erudite townspeople, and a number of general hangers-on have gathered to hear a debate which is sure to be fun. Today, one of the most brilliant students that the university has seen in years has promised to take on not one, but two champion debaters. He's a dusky young man from the deep south, from the plains between the Krishna and Godavari rivers in Andhra, where the Amravati Stupa has just been built. His eyes glow with intelligence and extreme confidence, bordering on arrogance, and he seems barely able to contain his excitement. In fact, he's grinning at his opponents and trash-talking them, and the two middle-aged champions, who are Buddhist monks, seem quite rattled already. The judges, who are professors from the university, arrive, dressed in simple monastic robes. They announce the rules for arguments and counterarguments, and remind the debaters that they will be on the lookout for any logical fallacies and ensure that the modes of inference used by them are correct and valid. The champions solemnly agree, whereas the young man from Andhra, grinning, announces that he'll simply use his opponent's own methods to destroy them. The audience laughs and cheers. A gong is sounded, and the debate begins. First, it is the turn of the champions. The first to speak is a Sarvastivada monk, an adherent of the school of universal existence. I would like to begin my arguments today with a quote from the Lord Buddha. Lord Buddha said that desire is the cause of all suffering. If we get rid of desire, we get rid of suffering. Hence, we can say that the removal of a cause is the removal of its effect. Therefore, we are bound to understand the question: What is causation? My hypothesis is as follows: A certain cause always produces a certain effect. Therefore, the relationship between cause and effect is always fixed. This is because all things have a certain fixed nature, a swabhava, which determines their causal effects. As an example, water has the property of quenching thirst. My body has the condition of thirstiness. Thus, when I drink water, my thirst is quenched. Fire does not have the property of quenching thirst. Thus, when I drink fire. My thirst is not quenched. Now the second champion speaks. My learned co-debater presents an interesting case, but my doctrine of Sautantrika, the true doctrine, leads me to disagree. The relationship between cause and effect is indeed fixed, but the effects of a cause are not just because of the fixed nature of the cause. It is silly to speak of change unless we think of what the cause effects. So when I drink water, the properties of water change the property of my body from being thirsty to being not thirsty. The production of this novel change is because of the interaction of the properties of substances. That is what is fixed, not the nature of the cause. Aha! I see my young opponent has something to say. Yes, ma'am. Learned judges and members of the audience, I submit that my opponent's theories. 
विच रिक्वायर दैट सब्सटेंसेस हैव फिक्स नेचर्स और प्रॉपर्टीज आर अटर नॉनसेंस मोर इंपॉर्टेंटली दे एक्चुअली फ्लाई इन द फेस ऑफ द ओरिजिनल टीचिंग ऑफ द बुद्धा हिमसेल्फ यू सी सर्स यू हैव बीन टू कॉटअप इन द मेथड्स ऑफ आर वेदिक फिलोसफिकल ओपोनेंट्स एंड नो लॉन्गर हैव अ स्टांस ऑफ योर ओन now i shall introduce you to my radical new idea which will completely pulverize not only your modern schools of buddhism but also these other learned brahmins i call it sunyata zeroness and i reject your idea of fixed natures entirely ah what new fangled nonsense is this i admit that we have used the vedic methods of reasoning but our conclusions are absolutely correct how can one question such a basic assumption as things having fixed natures a stone is a stone is a stone do you mean to tell me that a stone is actually a zero away with you oh i can question it just like how buddha questioned everything and found the ultimate truth that leads to salvation now i think i have understood what buddha actually meant but you all have tied yourself into knots because you have become reactionaries instead of setting the terms of the debate as he did i'll tell you what i mean let me take my sarvastivadin opponent's example i reject your entire premise that you need a fixed nature to explain how causes lead to effects why you say that a cause must have a fixed property to have an effect thirst quenching is the fixed nature of water you say but what you are actually saying is that the effect of the cause is the property of the cause but that is a circular argument it's like saying i am nagarjuna because i am nagarjuna by your logic there can never be any change there can only be causes always being causes oh hang on ha well done then you and i are on the same side Oh no ma'am your idea makes even less sense than his does you say that an effect is the result of the fixed property of the cause but if water has a fixed property of being water and i have a fixed property of being me then how can the interaction of these fixed properties lead to any change i i'll get back to you on that but what on earth do you propose as an alternative young man it's very easy to sit around saying you are wrong but i don't hear you coming up with any ideas well here it is i propose that there is no such thing as a fixed nature at all all things exist only because of their interaction with other things change is possible because a lack of essence sunyata zeroness is fundamental to everything thirst can be quenched when the process of ingestion transforms water into body You see things only have meaning in relation to how other things transform them thus i can say that buddha's idea that there is no such thing as a fixed self is indeed true nothing can be permanent neither pleasure or pain as buddha said and i didn't even have to use vedic methods of reasoning to get at it what do you have to say to that you old scamsters The audience cheers and the judges rule in favor of the young man full of satisfaction and now even more set in his radically logical ways this man Nagarjuna returned to South India 
He was to become one of the most transformative of all Buddhist teachers. Indeed, he is still worshipped today in Tibet and parts of Asia as the second Buddha. This is his story. I'm Anirudh Kanisati and this is Echoes. It's probably more than a little surprising to hear that there was once a guy called the second Buddha and that he was a South Indian. This remarkably snarky and skeptical individual, Nagarjuna, dominated Indian philosophy in the second century CE. His radical idea of shunyata, of emptiness, brought into question some of the most basic assumptions that we use to navigate the world. For example, are the jeans that you're wearing blue? Are they blue only because you're looking at them? Is blueness a fixed property of genes? And does blueness exist independently of genes? You might think that these are rather strange and obvious questions to ask, but that's because we in the modern world have actually sat down and done scientific experiments for centuries to help us figure out what reality is and how things work. And we still don't have all the answers. For example, we haven't yet been able to figure out a grand unified theory of physics that explains everything from the quantum nature of things at the tiniest scale to the workings of relativity at cosmic scales. We don't yet know what lies beyond black holes, but we can develop ideas about these problems using a particular method and means of arriving at knowledge. That's more or less what ancient humans did as well. The question of what things are, what reality is, has puzzled brilliant minds across the world. Greek philosophers cast a long shadow in this regard. When I did a course on philosophy in college, for example, I had to learn about all sorts of obscure bearded Greek dudes with names like Anaxagoras, but it turns out, ancient India had an equally vibrant and brilliant bunch of philosophers. By the 2nd century CE, a time when Buddhism had spread across most of the Indian subcontinent, it was presented with a radical challenge from a coalition of new philosophical schools that drew on Vedic ideas. These included schools such as the Dualist or Samkhya, which held that the universe was divided into matter and spirit, the Atomist or Vaisheshika, which aimed to figure out what the fundamental components and properties of things were, and the School of Law or Nyaya, which developed an elaborate set of categories for all things and came up with a set of debating rules that aimed to bring out, through logic and inference, the ultimate truth that two opposed debaters sought. I'm obviously simplifying all these fantastic schools, but the point here is that because of how radical and interesting many of these schools were, they were immensely popular and influential. They also happened to stem from ideas which appeared in basic form in much older Vedas, now reinterpreted and reformulated for a more cosmopolitan and curious crowd. Ideas such as the soul, Atman, Karma, and engagement with the material world in pursuit of the traditionally Hindu goals of Dharma, Artha, and Kama were catching on thanks to the interesting new interpretations provided by these schools. And of course, going to a debate hall to learn something and have a good laugh at the loser's expense was the ancient Indian equivalent of going to the movies. Keep in mind that as we saw in the last episode, all this was taking place at a time of great political flux and turmoil when languages were being reinterpreted by elites to suit new political and cultural meanings. New supercultures were emerging and spreading across India. In this era of change and challenge, Buddhism, traditionally one of the dominant religious forces of the Indian subcontinent, found itself on the back foot. 
Buddhists now found that they had to come up with theories just as elaborate and complex as the ones propounded by the Vedic schools, but they were often at a disadvantage. The Buddha, being a remarkably pragmatic and savvy sort of guy, had always avoided getting sucked into debates like this. If you asked him something like, does the world have a beginning? He'd have grinned and pointed out that you, having been shot with the poisoned arrow that is material existence, are busy asking who shot the arrow and where the shooter was born instead of asking how to get the arrow out in the first place. But at the same time, Buddha also said things which to him were obvious, such as desire is caused by suffering and there is no such thing as a fixed self, something that we saw the philosopher Nagasena explain in the first episode of this podcast. The thing is, Buddha was a master at deflecting attention to what he considered the real problem of how to attain enlightenment and detach oneself from the material world. But almost immediately after he died, other philosophical schools challenged Buddhism to come up with coherent theories of reality. If it didn't, Buddhist monks couldn't win public debates, and if they couldn't win public debates, nobody would believe that Buddhism was the intellectual equal of its opponents even if it was a popular religion. Onto this confused scene appeared Nagarjuna. Unfortunately, we don't have any Indian sources which tell us about his remarkable life, but he became such a Buddhist celebrity that his story was translated into Chinese and Tibetan texts as well. The most colorful version of the story goes as follows. Nagarjuna was born a Brahmin and came into the possession of strange magical knowledge. Being a rather wild young fellow, he used this knowledge to secretly transport himself and his gang of equally distributable friends into the king's harem where they would seduce the women. One day, they were caught in the act, but Nagarjuna managed to escape. His friends, though, were boiled alive as punishment. It was then that he realized what a precarious business the pursuit of desires was. This led him to renounce the world and seek enlightenment. While this story is obviously a concocted legend, it's interesting to note that even Buddhist sources had kind of figured out by this point what a big deal it was to be a Brahmin. They didn't accept the caste system, but they tacitly implied that converting a Brahmin, that archetype of Vedic religion, to Buddhism, was a major propaganda point. All that we do know for sure about Nagarjuna is that he lived between the 2nd and 3rd century CE, that he probably studied at Nalanda University, having travelled there all the way from Andhra, and that he came back to have a most colourful and interesting career. You see, Nagarjuna's idea of Shunyata was extremely creative and almost single-handedly reinvigorated 2nd century Buddhism, a religion which was, at this point, almost 800 years old. All of a sudden, Buddhists had the intellectual tools that they needed to take on Vedic philosophy on their own terms, while simultaneously revolutionizing their own worldview by adding additional intellectual depth and coherence to the Buddha's remarkable ideas on psychology and reality. Of course, Nagarjuna pissed off too many Buddhists for them to use his own arguments, but his method of skepticism remained very influential. Meanwhile, our man went about living a long and happy life where he constantly went around getting into tiffs with traditional Buddhists that didn't buy into his philosophy, as well as increasingly exasperated Vedic opponents. The poor fellows would construct elaborate theories and categories, 
only to have Nagarjuna show up and then use their own reasoning to expose flaws in their fundamental assumptions, leaving them to wipe the egg off their faces as crowds guffawed. And as if that wasn't enough, Nagarjuna kept writing books through his whole life with very nice titles such as Refutation of My Enemies and Pulverization of Their Categories, which were clearly not designed to piss them off at all. And in a sign of how much the intellectual culture of India had changed since the time of the Buddha, who deliberately used Magadhi Prakrit instead of Sanskrit to mark how Buddhism was different from Brahmanism, Nagarjuna wrote in Sanskrit and used brilliant twists of Sanskrit grammar to represent his ideas. It was the language that all the cool kids were using for philosophy, thanks to its refined and expansive grammar, and its popularity as we saw in the last episode was now on the ascendant. Nagarjuna was, within his own lifetime, somewhat of a celebrity. He likely went around Andhra, surrounded by his posse of skeptical monks, getting into debates and attracting enough attention from local elites to found new monasteries propounding his philosophical system, Madhyamika, the middle way between eternalism and annihilationism. While Madhyamika didn't actually become popular in its own right in India, it spread through trade and debate from Andhra into the Tamil country. The great teacher Aravan Adigal, who is mentioned in the Tamil classic the Mani Meghala, may have actually been Nagarjuna. More on that in the next episode though. Madhyamika also spread from Andhra's ports across the seas into Southeast Asia and even all the way north to Tibet, where it would be reinterpreted over centuries to suit new cultural contexts. In Andhra itself, despite Nagarjuna's own personal popularity, this cultural context of Buddhism was changing radically. In previous episodes, we've seen how the Buddhism of Andhra was deeply tied to local religious traditions. Massive stupas such as Amaravati were basically crowdfunded undertakings made by thousands of tiny donations obtained from the urban centers and trade networks of the coastal belt. Rather than a single royal or state hierarchy, there were dozens of smaller groups that reached accommodations with various Buddhist schools as well as the weak overall authority of the Satavahanas who had moved there from the western Deccan. From Amaravati, the Satavahanas had some success against the Shakas but didn't really achieve anything significant. By the late 3rd century all that was changing. The Satavahanas were so weakened that one of their vassal dynasties, the Ikshvakus, who were based in a city called Vijayapuri, one of the many Indian cities whose name means City of Victory, which was just 60 miles from Amaravati, attacked and overthrew them. In the process, they sacked the wealth of many Buddhist monasteries and disrupted trade in the Krishna River Valley. This is important for a number of reasons, the foremost of them being that the construction of religious monuments is critically dependent on who has the money to build them in the first place. We have a tendency to think of temples or stupas as existing in some kind of religious vacuum, as though they weren't affected by politics or economic structures. But that's never the case. Amaravati was a remarkable example of how societies fund grand monuments when political and economic power is decentralized and there's a social incentive to build things like that. The Ikshvakus came and destroyed the networks of that decentralization and built up their own city of Vijayapuri into a new religious and economic hub. But the Ikshvaku kingdom was considerably smaller and more concentrated than the Satavahana Empire had been. 
by uprooting older patronage networks, they may have inadvertently dealt a deadly blow to Amaravati and went about reformulating Andhra Buddhism to suit their own political interests in Vijayapuri. Henceforth, though the Buddhist Sangha was still a major force, it became increasingly dependent on royal patronage because merchant networks were simply not independent or wealthy enough to make donations to them in their own right. And the Ikshvakus were very well aware of that. Many of the Buddhist inscriptions from Vijayapuri are just of Ikshvaku queens donating stuff to various Buddhist schools such as the Upper Mahavinasalias, the Bahushrutiyas, Ahirasangikas and Mahashashikas, all critically dependent on royal patronage by various individuals for their survival. These royal individuals gained popularity and spiritual merit from their donations to the Buddhists. But at the same time, the Ikshvakus drew very strongly on the Shrauta rituals of Brahminical Hinduism, which was becoming more and more popular to establish their own right to rule. And that wasn't even the only strategy that they used to do that. The very name Ikshvaku itself was deliberately chosen, it seems, to imply that they were descended from the dynasty of the mythical god-king Rama. Inscriptions also show that the Ikshvaku kings, like the Satavahana kings, performed grand Vedic sacrifices while their wives and sisters created Buddhist institutions to add further legitimacy to their rule. And they were remarkably successful at it. Indeed, the later Shaka kings also intermarried with the Ikshvakus, apparently recognizing them as equals and successors to the Satavahanas. We'll come back to the political and relationship networks of the Ikshvaku dynasty in the penultimate episode of this season. The Ikshvaku capital of Vijayapuri was a most remarkable city. In it was a great stadium, which is strangely similar to what we usually associate with Greco-Roman amphitheatres, perhaps an idea that they got from their trading partners. They were temples catering to various Hindu gods, with names such as Nodagishwara Swamin and Puppabhadra Swamin, which might seem strange to us, but were clearly popular and recognizable to the people of Vijayapuri. If anything, they would have thought that our modern gods, which incorporate many later pan-Indian influences in such as the regional stories, are the strange ones. In general, these gods were all different forms of Shiva, who was already presenting a popular challenge to Buddhism, but we'll come back to that in a later episode. There were dozens upon dozens of mansions constructed for its wealthiest citizens, decorated with splendid stone carvings representing the art of Amravati in its most mature and developed form, in non-religious contexts, of course. In them, we see a clear awareness of the pan-Indian legends and stories of the time, which were just being compiled in massive Sanskrit tomes, such as the Brihat Katha, an ancient Indian bestseller, which was quite popular with the new, fashionable Sanskrit-speaking elites. The city's wide roads thronged with the ancestors of modern Telugu speakers, as well as monks and merchants from Sri Lanka, Bengal, Malaysia, Burma and many other places from across the Indian Ocean attracted by this new hub of religious and trade networks. But the most interesting thing about Vijayapuri is that according to legend, Nagarjuna spent his last days there on a hill called Sri Parvata, the holy mountain. There, a grand monastery house students from dozens of modern countries, 
where they may have learned from the great logician himself. And though the Ikshvakus themselves leaned towards Brahmanism, at least the kings did, their city became inexorably intertwined in legend with the history of Buddhism. In Telugu, the city soon came to be called Nagarjuna Konda, the hill of Nagarjuna. But this splendid city, which was possibly the only truly ancient Indian city still standing, and which could have taught us so much about our past, about how this pan-Indian culture evolved and interacted with local ones, was comprehensively destroyed by the construction of the Nagarjuna Sagar Dam in the late 20th century. Though teams of dedicated archaeologists managed to save most of the site by moving the larger monuments to higher ground, all the tiny traces of human lives, the combs and coins and pots and pans were wiped out. They still call to us silently from beneath thousands of tons of blue water, a mute spectator to the power and forgetfulness of India. If you like this podcast, why not leave us a rating and review? And don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. While you're at it, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at IVM Podcasts. And if you have questions or comments on this episode of Echoes, I'm at Ekanisetti on Twitter and at Anirudha Devaraya on Instagram.